from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. By his own account, State Representative Travis Fitzwater was underestimated in the competitive Republican primary for the 10th Senatorial District. But the Cowley County Republican defied expectations and is all but assured to be in the Missouri Senate after 2023. On this episode of Politically Speaking, Fitzwater explains why he won that race and talks about the issues he wants to champion in the General Assembly's upper chamber. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in studio today, she is St. Louis Public Radio State House and politics reporter. Sarah Kellogg, good to be here in person still. Good to see you in person still. (laughs) And joining us via Zoom, he is effectively the senator-elect for the 10th district, barring a libertarian revolution. State Representative Travis Fitzwater. Representative, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, but I just want to kind of jump into this 10th district Republican primary because there were a lot of state Senate primaries that were interesting. And over the next few weeks, I think we're going to bring on some of the Republican and Democratic winners of these. But but this one, I think, like took the cake as far as like complexity and like suspensefulness. Um, what do you think it took for you to win this primary that included a self-funding candidate who has been on the ballot many times, a former state representative, and a current state representative, along with two other candidates. Well, thank you all for having me on. This is this is a it's always a joy to talk with you all. Um, you guys do a great job. I think it's fun to talk about because I, I, it's still kind of surreal. You know, three days ago us winning that massive primary, having been outspent uh, close to two to one, three to one, something like that was just an incredible honor. And I think there's a lot, there's a lot of detail to it, but I think a lot of things worked, a lot of things worked in our favor and a lot of things had to work in our favor because for three and a half months, we were told how we had no chance. Some of our friends who said they'd be there with us left us because they thought we were dead in the water everybody pretty well wrote us off and we just kept pushing the boulder up the hill you know day every day we'd work we'd work a little bit chip away at it knock doors go to parades go to events meet people gather endorsements we had a really neat innovative plan on uh, media uh, especially using facebook to to target actual voters not just throwing stuff at the wall and hoping it would stick just had a really good plan. And I would say also that I just really believe my faith played a part in it. And it's where the Lord had us. And I think that was really important as well. 
In some respects, you started off at a disadvantage after redistricting. It became a much more St. Louis-centric district with St. Charles, Lincoln, Pike, Montgomery mixed with Callaway. Did that give you some pause? It was certainly a much more difficult district once Wentzville was at Wentzville that that St. Charles area was added in because Jeannie's district Senator Riddle the, our current senator who's a, a friend and mentor and she helped us a ton by by um, uh, endorsing our campaign which helped us I think in Lincoln County in particular but the uh, that new district was very very different and um, it, it just I think when five people got in the race from all over the district I think the reason why we really thought we had a chance and believed that from the time we started to the end was that because we were the only candidate from Callaway County and knowing what I knew about our support in the district in Callaway County and how the connections I'd made over eight years were just really strong. And we felt like money couldn't buy that support, um, the goodwill that was created over years. Um, we just really felt like we always had a path because Callaway County, we just knew Callaway County was going to come through. And towards the end, when we observed that most of the candidates didn't spend any time in Calgary County at all, I don't, I'm not even sure uh, Mike even stepped foot in Calgary County. I could be wrong, but I don't, I don't know that he was ever there. Um, and the other candidates didn't spend any time. There weren't any signs there for any of them, really, maybe a smattering. There was one that I knew of of Mike Carter and uh, maybe one or two for Spencer. Jeff Porter had some kind of on the Northeast area that were connected to Montgomery County. But really, no effort was made to even build um, anything from a Senate campaign in Cali County. We just really felt like if that were the case, it gave us a significant advantage. And that certainly played out when you looked at the, the, the end result. But we also, we didn't just work in Cali County. Like, we worked really hard in Lincoln County. Once Randy Peitzman got out, um, I can't remember when, but about a month and a half ago or whenever it was. And Randy Peitzman, we were, by the way, is a, he was a, he was terming out of the Missouri House. He filed to run for this seat, but then like withdrew, I think one of the last days possible to withdraw, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I, I, I thought he missed the deadline for that. Actually, I didn't even know that, that you could go to the court and get some like court order to pull your name off the ballot, but that's what he did on the very last day that was possible. And he, he was very well-liked in Lincoln County, very popular. Uh, we were obviously very concerned about his candidacy, um, but we still felt like even, even with him in, we still felt like we had a path because we knew Callaway County was going to come through for us. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we just, you know, we, there were some, we worked really hard in Lincoln County, when, especially once Randy got out, but we knew we were going to anyway, even with Randy who stayed in. We worked hard in Wentzville. The one dynamic that I think helped us tremendously uh, was the getting the endorsement of the Fraternal Order of Police and the firefighters mm-hmm. in the state of Missouri? That that mattered a ton. And when we walked when we walked around and knocked doors, we heard that so often that people were just really taking care of cops, uh, supporting them, and fighting for our community safety was a huge huge issue when we talked to voters. And so that went a really long way. And so that helped us in Wentzville. It helped us in Lincoln County, helped us in Pike, uh, just across the district. You know, cops and firefighters appreciated our support and we, we appreciated theirs. It, it was so meaningful to us. So one of the things that I was paying attention to in this race is just the candidacy of Mike Carter in general. Mike Carter, for listeners who don't know who he is, has been running in various elections around Missouri since at least 2008. Um, typically his 
mode of campaigning has just been spending money on robocalls. But in this campaign, he loaned himself a half million dollars and put together what, for all intents and purposes, was a real campaign with like billboards and broadcast ads. And there was polling that came out like shortly before this race was called, showing him in the lead by a pretty healthy margin. But unlike the U.S. Senate race, which we're going to talk about later in the show, those polls turned out to be pretty wrong. Like, is it just really difficult to accurately do public polls of state Senate races? Or was it a situation where maybe he was in the lead at that point, but you were just on an upward trajectory to where it peaked at the right time? I think it's a combination of those things. I think the easy answer is yes, it's impossible to poll legislative districts, especially when people, we heard a lot of people just kind of tired of phone calls. So I think the polling just was off because I don't, I don't, I think maybe you were polling the same people over and over. Who knows where they were, what they were voting on on any given day. We, we saw some numbers for the other candidate from Mexico, Missouri, who didn't even live in the district, but he was, he was getting high numbers across the across like areas where we were like well that doesn't make any sense and so you know we we just we just figured that people weren't weren't taking the polling very seriously and what we heard on the doors was we didn't hear we we didn't go to doors and felt like um, mike had really strong support Um, we didn't hear a lot of people saying i'm all in on mike carter usually when and i've knocked i don't know how many thousands of doors over my political career but usually when you have somebody who who has strong support you hear it on the doors and i can count on my hand the amount of people that said i'm for mike carter on one hand while we were knocking doors which made us feel like we we had a chance we had a path and um and his support seemed very soft and he spent a lot of money obviously and he did a he did a good job like branding himself as a trump republican and um you know i think he did a lot of things well but we really finished very strong. And I do think we were behind in the polls because there were some there were some trends that you can kind of, you can't rely on a poll, but you can at least find some trends. But we saw in the little that we knew about polling, because our campaign didn't do, do any polling, we just we just heard from through the grapevine that we were down and everybody kept telling us nonstop that we had no chance. So uh, we just kept going and kept saying, listen, we, we believe we have a path because we're not hearing what is being told to us by people that should know that we're behind. And we just kept going. Moving on to the state of the Missouri Senate, a lot of people were watching state Senate primaries to see how many members the conservative caucus would add. Would it be fair to say that you'll likely not join that caucus? Yeah, I won't I won't join the conservative caucus. Um, I think, though, it's, it's way too early to say that uh, because their numbers grew, that the state Senate can't function. And that was part of my big message was I have great relationships with conservative caucus members in the Senate and um, Republicans and Democrats. Like I've always just made my career about building strong relationships. I just got off the phone with um, uh, Nick Schroer a couple minutes ago before our call to congratulate him and had a great conversation. I think the Senate needs to be about relationships. And um, and I think that's how you move the needle. And that's, that's my goal is to build relationships with with the with each individual senator so that we can do what we told our voters we would do is go in there and and make the changes that they're asking for 
In addition to Representative Schroer, if he wins the second district race, he will likely join the conservative caucus. You also had Mary Elizabeth Coleman. If she wins her race, will probably join Ben Brown in the 26th district. Um, And then Jill Carter beating uh, Bill White in the Joplin area. And also, it should be noted that Rick Bratton and Mike Moon did not win their congressional races, so they will be back in the Senate. Do you you kind of alluded to this, but they have a decent amount of numbers now. And if they stand unified, they can really slow things down. Like, how do you think this will impact how the Senate operates after 2023? I think if Jason, you know this as well as anybody, I don't think you can ever predict how the Missouri Senate's going to function in any <laughs> given year. But um, yeah. <laughs> I think I think the uh, I think the proof will be in the pudding. I think there's several things that they that they want to get accomplished that I would agree with that I think we ought to be working on in this next legislative session. I think there are plenty of things we share um, thoughts on that, that the relationships just matter. And so we've got to push to get some things done. And so I think it's way too early to say that 2023 is just going to be a lost cause. I think everybody kind of assumes that, but I'm not assuming that because I just have so much to learn. You know, the, the Senate was a mess last year. I think everybody, saw that and that was the message I said when I was out on the stump but I think there's plenty of blame to go around and I think we just need leaders that are going to go in and work work with people and to get things done that are Missouri that Missourians are asking for and I'm not writing off 2023 because I I just have a lot to learn I have a lot of relationships to build I I've talked to Mary Elizabeth Coleman we have a good relationship I've ta- I talked to Curtis Trent uh, he's a great guy and I think he'll do well as a senator I talked to Ben Brown really impressed with him he's a good friend of Paul Kurtman, who's one of Paul's one of my great friends. And I just think that the relationships move the needle. And I think that's, what's going to be important in 2023. And we'll see how it goes. There's obviously rifts that need to be dealt with. There's leadership races that are going to be very, very interesting because of the, because of the dynamics of this, this primary election. Um, but I think there's a lot of space to, to show Missourians that we can govern. Do you think that, you know, possible pickups within the conservative caucus, do you think that could increase the relevance of Senate Democrats since their votes will be needed to pass things if the conservative caucus holds strong? Or do you think that the conservative caucus could use their leverage to push the Senate to pass more controversial legislation? I think that remains to be seen, too. Um, I think, you know, the Democrats are announcing that they feel more relevant than they ever have been because they think that's a path. And I just think that the conservative caucus probably needs to be given a lot more consideration about the issues that they have in front of them. And we bring up some of those issues and, and take votes. Now I'm not in leadership. I'm saying things that I don't, you know, I, again, I have a lot to learn, but I think that, um, that we got to sit down and figure out what the policy agenda is for the next session and have a plan going into it so that the, so that Republican legislation, good Republican legislation and our conservative values, which is what we've run our campaigns on, will be prioritized going into the legislative session in 2023. So I think it's just way too early just to, again, to write it off and say that, you know, that, that we're not going to be successful because I think there's space to be successful and get things done. It just takes getting in a room and not yelling at each other on the House, on the Senate floor. Yeah. Speaking of policy, what are some policies that you would want to focus on when you get to the Senate? That's a great question. I think protecting kids is a big deal. I think there's a lot, there's a lot of space for, um, 
figuring out how do we deal with the mental health issues. My wife is a licensed professional counselor. She works with kids and the mental health needs in our communities today are just significant. We have these foster care parents and adoptive parents that have kids that have incredible amounts of needs. Um, I would love to figure out ways to make the adoption process and foster care easier for parents and giving more resources to those folks. Um, and I think that's really, really important in our state going forward is taking care of kids. There's also, there, there are kids that have been abused across the state. Lincoln County in particular has what, I, what I've been told is about a thousand cases of, of child abuse that need to be investigated and adjudicated in our court system. And I think that was like and a so big, we, that was a big conflict during the last veto session, wasn't it, Sarah? Last year, last year, I believe it was because we tried to get some money in the budget yeah. for yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. investigation um, for the sheriff's office in Lincoln County yes. to have some, some money for investigating these crimes. Yeah. The and, house overturned uh, I, it, but then the Senate didn't. So yeah. Yeah. And that was a, a that was a priority for Randy Peitzman. I got that money. I helped Randy get that money back in the budget this year, but it's more of a statewide level now. So there's, there's kind of a grant program from the statewide state um, for every county to apply for, but um, Lincoln County in particular, I hope that they can get some funds and um, they can hire some investigators to, to start adjudicating these, these uh, issues. We, I mean, we just have to protect kids. So that's one big thing that's important to us, not only as, as a legislator, but, personally as a family we just see it on a on a regular basis my wife is dealing with some some kids that just just need services they need uh they need help and um i think that's really important um secondly i just think you know the federal government is really concerning like as a as a very progressive democrat president at least in my opinion um you know they're doing some things that we've got to push back up back on in my opinion um especially energy wise the state, the state of our energy policy is very concerning. And we, I'm just a nuclear energy advocate and there's not a whole lot we can do on a state level to encourage that other than to be a voice to Congress and say, we got to stop being scared of, of nuclear energy because it's the only, the only way to replace baseload power if you get rid of coal plants like we are without, without hurting the, you know, having carbon free energy. And so, you know, we, we have to be leaders in the energy space as well for, for Missourians because they're going to their rates are going to keep going up as coal plants are being retired. So we have to have an energy policy that makes sense. And that's kind of pushing back against the federal government's over regulating the things that we ought to be embracing, like nuclear energy. Um, I think there's economic policy that must that has to be discussed. I think Missourians should get a lot more money back from from their the state because last year we were up 20 percent in general revenue year over year which means we're overtaxing. and i just saw the new revenue numbers this morning for july and they were up i think 38 39 percent just wow. in the last month from last year which is just you know the the government is getting a lot of money and we ought to we ought to be giving some of that back to missouri and so that will be another discussion is how do we do tax policy that is fair to Missourians and gives them more of their money back because they spend it a lot better, in my opinion, than the government does. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative and future State Senator Travis Fitzwater. 
And we're back on Politically Speaking with Travis Fitzwater. He is a Republican from Callaway County who just won the 10th District Republican Senate primary. So you were you were a good segueer because our next topic of discussion is the likely special session over a tax cut and also agriculture tax credits. Um, you actually met with the governor about this. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, I think the governor was just trying to promote what he would like to see out of a special session. Uh, it was an interesting conversation. Um, what they want to do on the tax side is basically lower our income tax to 4.8 right now. Uh, the, the only problem with that is that we, we've already done that. It's just triggered by revenue increases over the next several years. We I was the co-author with Senator Bill Eigel on that tax cut bill a couple years ago that, that eventually became Elijah Haar's um, uh, tax cut bill that got passed, which would reduce our income tax down uh, to, uh, I think, 5.1 or 5, 5.2, something like that. And then when we, when we last year, when we passed the, um, the Wayfair, I believe it reduced it down again to 4.8. But so he just wants to accelerate, the governor wants to accelerate that down to 4.8 now, since we have so much money in our coffers and our, and our general revenues are through the roof. For me as a Republican, I think that they're through the roof and that we can go, and I think it's in large part because of the tax cuts we passed years ago, I think it's doing exactly what we hoped it would do, which is increase, build our economy and increase increase our revenues by by encouraging investment. And so I, I just would like to be more aggressive on it. And I think the Speaker of the House, Rob Wiscove and I talked about this the other day, I think he agrees. And so we'll see how that plays out, but I think the governor I think the biggest thing, the biggest goal for the governor is for everybody to be on the same page before he announces a special special session. And I'm I I wonder if we can actually get to an agreement before a special session. And uh, I think that will be the biggest determinant of whether we have one or not is is whether all the parties involved can sit down and come to some conclusion on what that should look like without turning the special session into kind of a, a shooting match. Obviously, the state has a huge surplus right now, and even Democratic lawmakers have said there should be some form of tax relief. But given that many Americans have already received stimulus checks or child tax credits, would a tax cut from the state really make much of a difference compared to, you know, maybe eliminating the tax on food or other sales taxes? I think the reducing the income tax, which I think is just a, a very is very harsh against investment, especially for entrepreneurs. And this has kind of been the space that I've been in as a policymaker for several years is really being interested in in entrepreneurs and how to get them off the ground. Like we need to give them, we need to give Missourians as much space as possible to start businesses, to keep as much money as they can in their pockets. And I think that the reducing the income taxes is, is maybe the most effective way to do that, to encourage investment in the state of Missouri. And I also think on the low end, like we've also got to figure out ways to make sure that low income folks are also keeping more of their money if they're paying taxes or they're, or they're, um, you know, I've always been an advocate of the the um, the I can't why can't I think of the name of it? Earned the, income um, tax credit. Earned income tax credit. Yes, I've always been an advocate of that. You know, I think those things are important too. So we got to figure out ways to empower people to start companies and keep more of their money so that they can keep growing our economy in a in a significant way. Does the fact that the state is going to get billions of dollars from the federal infrastructure bill mean that there's just not really enough things to spend the surplus on? Um, that's why I think, again, you 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 hope that we would give more money back to Missourians because we're overtaxing at that point. 
Um, the, we need, for, secondly, you know, that brings up a good point. Like we need to have a long-term solution on infrastructure. Like, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of fixes here and there, but I think the governor is very interested in a long-term plan. I know Lieutenant Governor Kehoe is, I think a lot of policymakers ought to be more interested at this point, since we are going to expect these billions of dollars to have a long-term 10 year, 15 year, 20 year plan on state infrastructure because 70 needs to be expanded. You know, there are other highways in the state. 44 gets more, I think, um, uh, more industrial traffic than any other state, uh, any other highway in the state. We've got a lot of work to do on infrastructure to in continue to encourage this investment in the state. So there, there's just a lot. And um, what the federal government does on the infrastructure will be interesting, too, because they, they're just in the middle of an election year and um, inflation is still through the roof. And uh, there are a lot of concerns about federal spending. Obviously, this revenue trajectory that you mentioned is not going to last forever. So how do you make sure whatever tax cut gets passed doesn't make it more difficult in the future to fund basic state governmental services? I think you just have to have some saved. You know, I remember um, in 2008 and that, that, that recession lingered in our budget for a long time. I can't remember when it really finally started to feel like we were going on the upswing, maybe 2016, maybe 2015. I, I don't remember exactly. It was when I was first in the legislature. It felt like we were still struggling. It, it was a while. Um, like, obviously, 2000, yeah, 2009 was like helped a little bit because there was the um, there was the Obama stimulus money that came to the state. But after that went away, like it, it did feel like the state was kind of treading water for a few years, especially because they laid off a bunch of state workers. And my understanding is they didn't really replace those workers for a really long time. And you could correct me if I'm wrong there. No, I think they're state statewide, not statewide, but through the, throughout state government, we're down significantly. Because I think if you talk to any business, you know that we have a, a people shortage on jobs. That is certainly the case across departments in our, in our state. Um, it's a good and bad problem that there are jobs available, but the bad is obviously not having the, the people to fill them. Um, so we've got we have a lot of workforce development issues, a lot of um, economic development issues. We've got to we've got to figure out going forward. But I think I think as far as the tax cuts go, I think we have so much money in our coffers at this point that we have more than enough to give back to Missourians and enough to put on our bottom line to be prepared for the recession that we're in and may be in for for the short to long term. So. Uh, I think in a recessionary time when we have tons of money in our coffers, we, you know, we ought to be giving it back to Missourians. They spent, like I mentioned, they spend it, in my opinion, a lot better than we, than the government does. And, but we also have to be prepared for that recessionary issue. And I think we have enough money to do so. The income tax cut is, is kind of one part of what Governor Parson wants. And the other is on these agricultural tax credits. What exactly needs to be done there? And that's an important question for you since your Senate district has a lot of agriculture in it. Sure. The ag community, they, for investment in one of our most important industries in the state of Missouri, it's crucial to have those things available. And so I think that getting something done in that space, you know, I'd prefer the governor just didn't veto that bill, but you know, it is what it is. Here we are. Um, so I think we'll do, in my opinion, I, we do whatever it takes to ensure that those tax credits are renewed 
whether it's overriding a veto, which I don't think is on the table. I don't think that's a possibility in the Senate. I don't know that it's a possibility in the House um, or coming to the table and figuring out how to do six year sunsets. Um, I don't know. I don't know because I've just been trying to fight through the primary before I even started worried about the the special session. I think that there is space to get something done in a special session, but um, I think the governor obviously wants the six year and I would prefer a six year sunset as well. It gives more stability to those programs anyway. Um, but I haven't been in the back rooms figuring out what that negotiation looks like quite yet. So I'm not sure how that's, that's going to go. I think it's a little bit more um, to me. I'm not sure. Yeah. You know, with those sunsets and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I remember it originally had that six year sunset. Right. And then it was reduced. Yeah, that was just a negotiation. There was some politics being played with that particular thing because the, the folks in the Senate uh, knew that, that that would be a significant battle and worth bringing back to the table in a couple of years to renegotiate. So, yeah, I, I just I don't know all the dynamics because I wasn't in the Senate and I didn't negotiate that bill. I just I just knew that um, there were some significant conversations about that piece. So I, I just wonder if that will be a hang up because vetoing a priority for a number of conservative caucus members in the Senate, which was the two year sunset, and then expecting them to to just um, say, OK, we're fine with the six year sunset now is, is going to be an interesting conversation. And again, I'm not a part of those conversations, but I think that's a dy- dynamic that's worth like figuring out. So in the last topic, let's shift into the 2022 elections, which, as I mentioned, unless uh, there is a libertarian extravaganza in Callaway, Pike, St. Charles, Lincoln, and Montgomery counties. And I hear that. Can I just the, say this really quick? Yeah. Like, I think the last guy, the, the last guy that was guaranteed to win didn't win. So, it, you know, we'll, we'll run a, a hefty campaign to make sure that we're, we win in November. Yeah. And I hear that the libertarians, <laughs> I hear the libertarians are really popular in Avos. Is that correct? Well, yeah, I'm glad you could. I'm glad you said Avos. It's not a really Ox, important community. Not Oxfast. Yeah. That, I, I believe that that is one of the first times we communicate with each other uh, with Eric Schmidt. It. Yeah. With, with Eric Schmidt winning the GOP Senate primary. What do you expect in the general election for that contest? Uh, I expect Eric Schmidt to win. He's he's a tremendous candidate. I think he was the best candidate. I'm, I'm glad that he he pulled it out. And I I don't know that it becomes, you know, the the Democrat primary was really close. I was, you know, it's like surprisingly close. And I think that's in part because Lucas worked incredibly hard on the ground, it seemed. And um, Miss Valentine, uh, Bush Valentine, I think she, you know, she spent a lot of money and did a good job on on her marketing. But still, I think this is just a Republican state. And I think Schmidt's about as good a candidate as you're going to get on the Republican side. And I think uh, I think that's going to going to probably pull some people out too in the in that general election because they know the importance of a u.s senate seat going to republicans in the state and so i think the turnout is going to be pretty significant in in an off election year do you think that john wood who is the former u.s attorney who's running as an independent could complicate things for republicans especially if trudy bush valentine gets her bearings and starts catching fire no i don't think so why if I were guessing, I just from the from what I'm hearing in my district on the ground, you know, people are just mad about the the John Wood thing, and 
I think they're they see they kind of see through it that it could be a spoiler, and I, I just don't see him getting traction. Now I could be I could be very wrong, and I've been I've been very wrong in the past, but I just don't I don't see him catching fire now. Now if you we had an Eric Greitens as a as our U.S. Senate candidate, maybe a different story, but um, I just I just don't see him overtaking an Eric Schmidt in this and doing enough damage to to hurt Eric, who may win by double digits, even with John in the in the race. You know, not in Missouri, but in Kansas, we saw kind of the vote that uh, basically affirmed abortion rights. There's been some conjecture that the, that Missouri's trigger law that banned most abortions could spark a backlash, even among voters who feel abortion is morally wrong. What do you think about that? I don't know. I think it's yet to be seen. I, I talked to one consultant yesterday who thought that it, it could probably raise turnout for Democrats a little bit in the in the fall. But I don't know that it's going to be enough to change many of these races i think a lot of the especially state senate races are you know they're not a lot of competitive ones um so i i think where it probably has the biggest impact is probably the u.s senate race and uh i think it could motivate suburban voters but i I don't know that it has a has enough of an impact to really change any any outcome in that race in particular Uh, my last question for you was that i noticed that there were several democratic and republican lawmakers especially in the house but one example in the senate who lost re-election in primaries on tuesday should we read into any of that or was were some of these situations just redistricting quirky situations that may not have actually had anything to do with broader trends you know jason that's a great question i think it i think the answer is probably just like my race there were just so many dynamics it's hard to put your finger on any one of them but i think redistricting certainly had a big impact i think there were some there were some folks that worked behind the scenes that were effective in many districts but maybe not as effective in other districts um i think there you know people republicans conservative Republicans, especially in rural areas, and we heard this a lot too, is they just want leaders that are going to get things done, not like bicker and their egos uh, overwhelm overwhelm them and don't disallow the legislature from getting things done. And I think that that has an anti-incumbency feel sometimes. Um, and so I think you saw a little bit of that, but uh, redistricting, I would say, certainly had a had a large impact, some new areas, some some dynamic changes in districts. I mean, mine alone, like um, was just it just significantly changed the dynamics of our of our race. Um, you know, if you don't add Wentzville, if you don't have Wentzville in that district, you know it's it's a whole different it's a whole different race for the primary. So, um, so yes, I think redistricting was a big piece, but there were I think there were a lot of little little things also that played into how the elections went on Tuesday. Well, Representative, thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to having you back in the subsequent years to talk about policy as well as politics. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can read all of our coverage at stlpr.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter, Sarah? That's Sarah K. Kellogg, two L's, two G's. And I know that you are a very online guy, Representative. So how can people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? Yeah, if you just if you just Google Travis Fitzwater, you'll find me. It's at Travis Fitzwater on most all social media platforms. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long. 